What is up, YMA? Um, I hope that you know you're all doing well today. Um, as you guys know, today is September 11th, and this is obviously this is probably one of the most tragic days in American history uh, when we were attacked by um, you know Al Qaeda, and we feel that as a platform, as artists, we need to talk about this tragedy, and we need to talk about photographing, you know, or like recording or documenting this these kind of tragedies because it is a very heavy subject and we don't want to just talk about it by ourselves so we actually decided to bring on uh robert clark he is a photographer who actually went and photographed 9-11 so robert you have the floor hi guys how are you all we're good um good good um so uh, yeah it was uh it was uh you know, when you grow up photographing, I mean, I, I work for National Geographic among other big clients. It's, it's um, you know, it's always hopeful that you're going to photograph uh, something and it's going to be remembered and it's going to be in the history books and things. And this was um, really shot from my, my home in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, on the top of my building. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll definitely probably be the one thing that I'm most well remembered for in photography. Um, so, uh, you know, and so, it's, 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 it's great to get something in history books and art museums and, you know, exhibits about war photography and stuff, but it certainly wasn't, uh, the kind of work I set out to do. So, uh, Robert, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, your interest in photography and how you started to come, uh, to work with National Geographic and other photography clients. Well, um, you know, I grew up in Western Kansas and uh, started shooting pictures on it when I was around 16. Um, I was a pretty good athlete, but I, I became very interested in photographing uh, sports and uh, started doing that for the local newspaper. And then I went to college, to university in Kansas and after college at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, and, and I met a guy there named Buzz Bissinger who wrote the book Friday Night Lights. Um, and I ended up, uh, he hired me to shoot pictures for his book. And, you know, that kind of launched me into the magazine world. Um, it ran in Sports Illustrated. And, you know, then later on, the guy who hired me for the Philadelphia Inquirer became the director of photography at the National Geographic. And it just kind of evolved uh, from that from that point. Uh, uh, which, uh, you know, it's been good. I just had my 50th story published and it was a cover of the June issue uh, about World War II veterans. And uh, awesome. what kind of photography yeah. are you, uh, would you consider yourself, you know, uh, street, like what kind of photography I guess do you master in really? You know, I think, I think, I think really, you know, it's not just like pure photojournalism. Uh, but it is certainly documentary work. Um, you know, photojournalistic work is you're kind of a fly on the wall. And, and this is more uh, interacting with subjects and things. I, I love portraiture. Um, I've done a lot of work for National Geographic and science, archaeology, paleontology. I've done a lot of stories on uh, evolutionary biology. Um, you know, uh, profiles of people like Charles Darwin or Alfred Russell Wallace or some of the great um, biologists of, of 
our history. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of the things, I'm, I'm a pretty versatile photographer. I can be sent to do portraits or landscapes or scientific detail shots of things. So I've done a lot of animal portraiture. So, uh, you know, my, my work is, is pretty broad uh, in, in terms of subject matter. But I think it all pulls together because it's all, uh, you know, it, it, a lot of my work for Geographic certainly has been about uh, evolutionary biology. Awesome. Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. But see, I'm curious to know, like, see, I, I grew up in a, I think me and John both grew up in a post 9-11 world. So we were born after the attacks. And <laughs> my God, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was just curious, like, what exactly was the world like before 9-11? And, you know, how did that kind of event shape your perspective of the world after because we always hear from adults like oh yeah 9-11 changed the world well how did it change the world so i, I well, really want to know about that you know the the series of pictures of mine that you're talking about it's a four picture series there's two pictures of the plane in the air and then the next two pictures of are the aftermath of it hitting the the tower um and that's actually called watching the world change uh, uh that series and it, it it's kind of hard to explain, but but there, there was a whole level of innocence that was lost. And, you know, the Internet wasn't as big as it was. It was just like, yeah, you're emailing and stuff like that. But it was really the way it is. It wasn't a digital world as it is now. I mean, those pictures were shot on film. Mm. So they were shot uh, on, um, you know, ectochrome. Uh, so it was it was different there wasn't the immediacy as there is now. I can't imagine if 9-11 happened uh, and there had been Instagrams. You know, it would it would be very interesting uh, to see, you know, how that all would have been um, interpreted uh, through, right. through, that, through that medium. But, you know, I mean, you know, what's the term is that, I guess you guys are native uh, to, um, Native to the digital world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Native to the digital world. And I'm certainly not. I'm 59 years old. And I, I, um, you know, I started shooting digital pretty quick, uh, pretty quickly once it became good. I had the first digital cover of Geographic. And, um, yeah, so I started shooting digital pretty quickly. Um, but it's still, it's a different world. I think by the time I was 40 years old or so before, no, probably 42 years old before I started shooting that much digital. Right. Um, I remember, like, you brought up Instagram, and we, like, I don't know if you, like, remember this, but, like, a couple months ago, like, we had the uh, Beirut explosion. There was this big yeah, explosion yeah. in the city of Beirut, and yeah. everyone on Instagram, like, you know, everyone was reacting. They were all, like, trying to donate and, you know, send over links, like, putting them, putting, like, these links on their stories to, like, you know, go donate to, like, the Lebanese Red Cross. A lot of mm-hmm. um, people were talking about, you know, the actual situation in Lebanon. So, explosion, but we also heard about every little thing that's, like, happening. Not every little thing, but we heard a lot of, like, what is happening in their country. So, I think that's pretty, you know, amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world now. I mean, you know, I've been... To Beirut, and I was there for months uh, working on a story, and it's an amazing city. And you know, I had the best time over there. But you know, to see that explosion, I was right in that harbor um, where I was staying. I think in 2005 or so, 
but you know, I mean, everything's changed. I mean, it's just harder to travel um, since 9-11. There's just this, you know, politically, I think there's just kind of a reckoning um, with with the rest of the world since 9-11 because the world's gotten smaller. It's gotten more complicated. Uh, it's easier to do a lot of things, but I think, you know, politically, it's gotten more complicated you know right yeah i have some strong feelings about about you know attacking iraq you know which frankly didn't have that much to do with it you know 16 of the hijackers were saudi uh arabian citizens and you know it's just it's just complicated whether we did the right thing or not yeah right Um, but i but uh you know i have a lot of friends it's not the kind of work I did, and I didn't go over and cover the invasion or the wars or anything. Um, but, you know, certainly things in Afghanistan are horrible. They were horrible for women, women's rights, and, you know, what the Taliban had, had done there. I mean, you look back historically at, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, Afghanistan was a pretty progressive culture in a lot of ways. There was women doctors and, you know, it's the same with, uh, I, you know, some of the other countries over there. So it's it's just complicated how um, some fundamentalist uh, changes in religion have affected everything. But there, you know, there's also the use of this new technology, which is it, it levels the playing field as far as getting your information out. Mm. Yeah. It may, you know, yeah. And, you know, and that's different. That's completely different. It's not like the big media empires anymore and and you know how um given the current political situation in the united states how how much disinformation and false information gets out there yeah and when it's and it's when it's when it's targeted to a specific group what that can do yeah you know the propaganda aspect of it and what it can do so i mean those are the things that have kind of changed i think since 9 11. um you know i think in a lot of ways the world became closer and lost its innocence so uh and and you know that's that's not all good in yeah. a lot of ways oh, i mean the, it's still the world is still figuring out what it's going to do with this you know what it's going to do with this all this new uh, abilities because i you know you, you know you hope i hoped anyway that it was going to make things you know more just and fair and things and it, it it has in a lot of ways i think you see that in the blm movement that you know without the video of some of these things that have gone on you know there'd be no coverage of it and they would right. continue to go on so i think that you know i think that there's some really good that has come out of this and i think it levels the playing field for people who are um less advantaged so yeah, you know of it's kind of a long-winded answer but but i but i think that the world has changed such to, to such a significant amount that it's it is a dividing line. You know, 9/11 uh, is the dividing line that changed um, things. I think certainly in this country, it opened people's eyes up um, to things that were uh, going on in this country. I mean. Most Americans had no idea of our foreign policy and, you know, how, how, you know, most of the weapons that were used against us in Iraq, they were our weapons that were 
that we had given to Saddam Hussein and, and, you know, some of the weapons in Afghanistan were our weapons that were given to them when they were fighting the Russians. Right. So it's, it's complicated. It's more complicated than most people probably know. So, yeah. Um, just to follow up on that. So, you know, to dive a little bit deeper into your mindset on, on, you know, with ground zero. So like, what were you doing the day of? Did you hear the planes? Were you watching the news? Like what got you out of your seat? Yeah, well, what what happened is I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn on the water and I lived in a kind of an artist lofts building. Um, and my uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, she was a, a journalist at NBC and I had been at her house that morning and then I uh, ended up coming home because I was going to have some work done in my studio. Uh, and I got home probably at like 830 or so in the morning. She called it like, you know, uh, 850 or 852 or so uh, right after the first plane hit. And I was getting to ready to leave, leave town for National Geographic on a, an assignment. So all my cameras and film and everything were packed, kind of ready to go. And I, the first pictures of the um, tower were actually shot from my apartment. Oh, so wow. there's like a wit, you know, there's a window frame in it and all this. And then I was on the fourth floor. I ran up to the roof, which is up to the 12th floor. And, you know, I was the first one on the roof of the building and I was shooting and I was composing um, the picture with the smoke going downtown. And that's the direction that the second plane came in. So at 9.02 or 9.03, when the second plane came in, um, you know, I just saw it coming in and I reacted. Uh, and uh, it, it was, um, you know, it was instinctual to, to do that. You know, there's two frames of the plane coming in and then the third flame, the initial um, impact is a little bit soft because I kind of pulled back a little bit but uh, I think, you know, I was shooting film. So, you know, I think the first picture is on frame 24 of a roll of film. And, uh, and then, you know, I shot 15, 16 rolls of film from the roof of the building. I shot the collapse of both towers and then I, then I headed into the city. And I really didn't get town to town uh, or very close down there because they blocked everything off by then. Um, but, you know, I, some of the distinct memories to me are uh, being a kid of the 70s and, you know, always worrying about the Soviet Union and airstrikes and everything. The, the planes were, uh, it was dark blue, navy blue, so it, it appeared black. And, uh, you know, my first thought is that it was, the Russians were attacking us. And it's very clearly my first thought. But then, um, you know, kind of once I, I got that out of my head, it, you know, it was, uh, Bush was having a very hard time politically at that moment, and it really came down to, um, I clearly remember thinking that this means he's going to get anything he wants. Um, and and pretty short order, politically, he did. There was nobody standing in his way. Didn't nobody he go, like, be... like, didn't in his, sorry to cut you off, but like, didn't his, like, poll ratings or whatever go up from, like, almost zero to, like, 90%, like, well, they went, they went sky high. Yeah. And, and, and that's what happens. That's what happens in wartime. You know, you know, the country rallies around, rallies around the president. And that's what's fearful right now that we don't go start a war in the next 60 days. Um, mm. You know, but I wouldn't put that beyond um, anybody. 
involved in in those kind of decisions. So, um, but you know, I, I remember very clearly thinking that this means Bush gets anything he wants because he was, um, which you guys don't remember, it was it was pretty polarized at that moment. Nothing compared to how it is now. You know, but but for uh, you know a hot second, it was pretty polarized, and certainly in comparison, nothing like it is now. But it it was it was uh, you know it was different with Dick Cheney as our vice president and um, some of the decisions that were being made that were um, I think we're still feeling the effects of today. So yeah, um, um, I also wanted to definitely add definitely with the Patriot Act. Yeah, like that was a big one. Yeah, like, yeah, a- read- absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. we actually did That's... a gov assignment on that uh, for AP Gov. We were reading about it, and I'm like, "Wait, right. the government can do all this now?" You know. So I mean, yeah, yeah, and and and, and the creation of Homeland Security, right? Yeah, which, exactly. which which is which is essentially the secret police force that was used in Portland, you know, um, uh, and and uh, uh, other places, you know, when when armed people show up and they don't have names. And mm. you know affiliations and things like that. It's 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 uh, you know it's it's secret police. So I mean it's 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 not the way this country is run. You know so but we're so far beyond the norms of what is normal <laughs> for this for this country that you know none of it makes um, none of it compares to how it was. You know when everybody all these journalists are saying that this this is not normal. This isn't normal. What's going on right now? And it's a scary. I think it's a very scary and important time for people to pay attention. Um, right. So, so, uh, so, what were your camera settings? Do you remember, like, when you were taking those pictures? You know, what ISO film were you using? Just what? How was your setup? Yeah. You know? Well, I was actually my 300 millimeter 2.8 camera was in the shop, but I had a 2x converter. You know, a, a doubler that makes your lens yeah. longer. Um, and I was using a Canon um, 1DS, I think is what they're called, a Canon 1DS, motor-driven, uh, a 2X converter, and a 70 to 200 millimeter lens, which was racked out all the way. So it is essentially 500 at 5.6 at 280 millimeter. And I was shooting uh, Fuji Chrome. I was shooting. Uh, chrome film gotcha mm. i have a question so uh you know like you obviously took these photos what happened the day after 9 11 right so september 12th 2001 like what was happening in regards to like what was everyone trying to do like were people like asking for your photos what what exactly happened well the, the way it worked is you know i was you know essentially in shock um i think because it was just so such a stunning thing to see. And um, there's a, a reporter named Jane Pauley. She's on NBC. She does um, uh, Sunday morning show uh, now on CBS. But um, she wrote that uh, uh, it was a kind of day that put you in a good mood. And it was, it was so beautiful that day. And it was low humidity, clear as a bell. You know, you could just, you know, it was just a really beautiful day. Um, and whenever I have a day like that now, which we're coming into some of the kinds of those days right now, it always kind of reminds me of, uh, of 9-11. Um, 
But, uh, you know, the next day, the, the day it happened, I actually went up to Time Magazine because I'd done a lot of work for them. And, uh, you know, I knew, look, I know the significance of this. And uh, when that second plane came in, because nobody knew what was going on until that second plane came in. So the second plane came in, you know, I shoot for 10 minutes or so. Um, and I, I made a phone call to a photo editor at, at uh, Time Magazine. And uh, I'd done a lot of work with her, her name's Alice Gabriner. And I called and said, Alice, I, I got the second plane hitting the tower. And she said, well, bring it in when, whenever you can. So at the end of the day, you know, I couldn't get any closer to um, ground zero and make any meaningful pictures down there. I went up to Time Magazine and they developed the film up there. So, which was, you know, it was pretty interesting to have a photo editor sit there and look at the film before me and because I didn't know what I had you know I mean if it had been digital you would have been chimping and looking at it and um, uh, double checking it and you know and you know the, the thing is you could have you know with these cameras you could email it to your phone yeah. or you know blue, bluetooth it to your phone and then you know I have a half million over half million followers on Instagram I would have had it on Instagram in you know 10 or 15 minutes so um, and there's, you know, it's just a different, different world. Yeah. There's some kind of like element of surprise to it almost because with film, you know, you have to wait till you get them developed. You don't even know if your if your you know, film was exposed accidentally. Like there's so many variables and now with digital, right. you just, you know, even after these international yeah. incidents, you see like, I mean, minutes to hours after there's, there's videos and pictures yeah, yeah. and it's all in front of you, all the information's there. And it's such a different, it's such an interesting contrast really to look at. Uh, well, it is. It is, and I've I've said I've said for years that there was going to be like one of the next great photographers, or some of the next great photographers were going to le learn on cell phones, and it's it's true. I mean, there's a great photographer. His name's Michael Christopher Brown. Um, he's an amazing photographer. He, he had done a lot of his work on um, a cell phone camera, and he was uh, involved in an attack uh, on journalists in Libya that ended up killing. Uh, two friends of mine and some people he was traveling with. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's changed everything. I mean, you get a good cell phone and, you know, it, look, it doesn't matter. A lot of times when I speak to people, they ask me, whoa, what camera do you use? Would you do this? It doesn't, that's not the, that's not the important thing. The important thing, and I tell this to students all the time, the most important thing a photographer can have is a point of view a reason for doing what they're doing. And um, I, I, I very rarely think that, that people are um, uh, unbiased. I think you're born, you know, you're not born, but your, your environment, uh, you know, slowly builds in biases over, over, um, over the life, the life you're living. And I think you end up having opinions about all sorts of things. So I, I think that being non-biased is a, is a kind of a, a non-real construct. And uh, so I think that people have an opinion and go out there and try to reinforce that opinion. But, but not just reinforce it, also be open to being wrong. And so, you know, facts just to support a, a preconceived uh, you know 
doing a story about, you know, the beautiful story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine today about um, child hunger uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, the photographer, amazing photographer, uh, Brenda Ann Keneally, she went out there and shot this story because she knew that there was an issue. And she was out there to learn and discover, you know? So I think that that's really the thing is figure out the story you want to tell or or if you're a passionate storyteller, figure out how you tell it, whether it's um, through, you know, a podcast, whether it's NPR, where it's uh, just sound or whether it's photojournalism and it's pictures. So, I mean, it, it's all about it. It's all about communication with people. Mm. Now, I have a question. Um, so you were, were you on the roof the entire day that like, you know, 9-11 happened? No, I, I was I was there until uh, both towers went down. Mm. And then I... Yeah, I, 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 um, I was there until both towers went down, and then, uh, <clears throat> you know, an hour, hour and a half after that, I made my way into the city across the bridge. What were the experience? Like, what were people? Like, what did people look like in the city? Like, you know, we like in photography, a lot of times, like we talk about capturing people. Oh well, I mean, it was it was uh, bizarre. I mean, everybody was dazed and kind of a blank look on their face. Um, you know, my, like I said before, my wife's a journalist, she worked at NBC. So I, I went up to NBC to pick her up, um, later on a bicycle. And she sat on the handlebars as we drove, she lived down by Washington square park. So she got on the handlebars and we drove down fifth Avenue and right in the middle of the road, there wasn't a car. We didn't see a car except for at some intersections there were police and we just pedaled down Fifth Avenue and there was nobody around us. It's It was so bizarre. It's kind of like the pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember going to Times Square through the pandemic and it was just like, there's no one here. It was, yeah. you know, the day the earth stood still kind of, um, you know, everything's so deserted. Yeah, I remember, I remember like going and photographing the city and I, I believe, Jonah, you also went as well. And, you know, this was like back in March, April, when it was like middle of the pandemic. And yeah, mm-hmm. there was no one on the streets. The The drive from the city and the drive back, which usually takes around two hours or an hour, was like a half hour. It was <laughs> incredibly re- yeah. really relaxing, actually. Like we were like, yeah, yeah, it was like, but I'm, I'm sure it was I- not like that. Well, you know, I live in Williamsburg and all we heard all night was um, for months was sirens, you know, it'd be sirens all night long, Um, you know, because, you know, it is pretty intense over here. I, uh, yeah, I think there is a similarity to that. And I think that there's a similarity to the importance of the pandemic to the importance uh, 9-11 play, you know, because in... 15 years you'll be talking to people who weren't alive during the pandemic and you guys will be showing them your pictures and explaining to them you know uh, you know how important it was and 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 how it affected everything i remember when i moved to new york you know magazines were already having problems and this is 1992 or so <clears throat> magazines were already having problems and one photographer said to me, they go, oh, you know, it's impossible to freelance anymore. The magazines are dying. But my, my thoughts were like, well, what am I supposed to do? This is my time. 
I'm 32 years old. I know what I'm doing. I'm free, no family. This is my time to go do the work that I'm interested in doing. So I think you have to just commit to it. I think it's a very difficult time to be um, a young starting photographer. In a way, you can make a film and do all this stuff for like $5,000 and get a good camera and good lenses and stuff like that and go out and do your work. Um, but there's no place to do it. <laughs> Nobody wants to pay you to do it. Um, when, when I was coming up, I did internships at large newspapers all around the United States and I got paid. So for a young photographer, it's just more difficult mm. to, um, to find somebody who's gonna pay you and where you're gonna get opportunity. I worked, like I said, I had worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I think when I was there, there was photographers there, like four or five Pulitzer Prize winning photographers. And, and there was amazing work being done on a daily basis in that newspaper, whether it was the written uh, stories or whether it was photojournalism. So, you know, I, I was just lucky because it was like going to graduate school. It was. It was better than going to graduate school because it was real people producing real content <clears throat> for a great newspaper. And um, I, I think that, that that was really a formative experience in my life. I was there for an internship and then I stayed for three more years. Um, and then I went and did the book Friday Night Lights. So, um, you know, which I have a book coming out, which is, that was 30 years ago. So, um, Friday Night Lights was 30 years ago. This is a book reinvestigating and relooking at all the negatives that I shot from 30 years ago. Uh, and the book's called Friday Night Lives. It's out by the University of Texas in about a month. But mm, the interesting thing about it, oh, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm excited about it. It'll be kind of kind of nice. I always thought it could be a photo book, even 30 years ago. But the the really interesting thing about it to me is shooting film that was all black and white film so shooting film back then to now i would <clears throat> looking through my proof sheets and this is just the difference from then to now is there'd be a situation a really good situation i would have two pictures of it and then move on to another situation because there is a level of confidence that builds up over a long time of shooting that i had the picture and with digital I don't know if it makes you more insecure, but you get addicted to the fact that you can just view it. And and to sit there and look at your camera, you know, to chimp looking at your camera uh, to make sure you got it, you're gonna miss something else um, that's just as important. So I always actually urge people to, uh, on their display screen in the back, just to put their histogram on so that they can look and make sure that their exposure is right. Um, but don't get obsessed with looking at the pictures because you're going to miss a better picture that's happening in front of you. So I think it's, there's a real, for me, there was always a real meditation of being incredibly focused, not to use a photo pun, but <laughs> incredibly focused, incredibly focused while you're shooting, just pay attention to what's going on. There's plenty of time to look at your, your pictures later and it, it was really interesting for me to look back at pictures i shot 30 years ago and think you know i've had a decent amount of success i've had 50 stories in geographic and i think 14 covers or something like that but in a way it seemed like i was a little bit more secure 
30 years ago because I was shooting film and you had to commit, you know, <clears throat> you just had to commit to, um, to the, to the process and, and not try to edit yourself in the field. There's plenty of time for editing. Um, so, uh, when, when you're done shooting. So I, I always, um, uh, urge people, you know, to, to approach it that way, because I think, you know, you have to pay attention to do good work. Of course. You know, good, good work isn't just showing up and, you know, kind of walking around and being, you know, lackadaisical about this stuff. You have to pay attention because as you guys know, there's a lot of people who want to do this. You know, I was, I, I decided I wanted to be a photographer when I was 15, 16. And I really, <clears throat> I never had any other jobs except for, you know, doing manual labor things to try to buy cameras to move on in the same direction in this career. So, um, you have to kind of fully commit yourself. Uh, so, uh, I just, I just think it's, you know, it, it, and every person I know who has succeeded at this, I'm sure you guys are like big fans of Instagram. I'm sure you look at Instagram. There's, you know, there's people like, uh, Jimmy Chin who just won the Academy award for free solo last year. Um, you know, he, he was, interested in rock climbing, he'd done some rock climbing, but he basically moved to um, Yellowstone and all over, traveled all over Utah and lived in his car. I mean, he was very committed to the kind of work he wanted to do. Um, and he, he really wasn't a photographer before he got out there. And he's like, wow, I can get paid money for shooting pictures of this and still keep shooting pictures, <clears throat> still keep climbing and traveling. I mean, that's, that's the way, you know, that's, that's anybody who does this becomes very, very committed. There's a guy named Paul Nicklin who has like 8 million followers or something now. He's a, a photographer who works at Geographic. You know, he was underwater scuba diver up in the Arctic. And he also got a wildlife biology degree and started shooting pictures. And he knows more about, you know, uh, wildlife behavior of animals in the Arctic than, you know, anybody that I can possibly think of. And, and that is an advantage to his photography. So I think that you have to really commit. You have to pay attention. You have to learn. A lot of people want to do this, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, and, and your level of success, you know, a lot of people want to win awards and do this to try to separate themselves from the field. But I, I think that, you know, you just, you really just have to pay attention and figure out the kind of work you want to do. hundred <clears throat> percent. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that like, so, I mean, as a photographer, like, were you pretty much based in New York or were you, I, by the way, like, yeah. you're going to be posting all the Instagrams, like, in the, you know, in the description, because okay. like, to check it out. Um, but were you pretty much like based in New York or were you kind of moving around? Were you like one of these photographer kind of nomads? Well, I, I, after I worked, um, after I did the book Friday Night Lights, I took a job at a newspaper in Cincinnati, then a newspaper in Utah. And I wasn't really making the kind of images I wanted to make. So I moved to New York and, you know, within, I don't know, four years or so I was, 
I had reconnected with the director of photography in Philadelphia who'd moved to National Geographic. And, you know, from that point on, I was working for Geographic. I think that for 25 years, I, I almost didn't go without an assignment for them. I wasn't, I was almost constantly working on an assignment for them. You know, I, I think I told you that, um, I had the June cover of the magazine. It was a story about World War II. Uh, veterans. And the nice thing about that story is that it was my idea. It was based on a, a portrait I did with my dad and a conversation that I'd had with my dad. So that was nice, you know, to have mm. it be something that in a, in a lot of ways was personal. And and then the, the magazine ran a picture of my dad, you know, uh, full page in the, in the article, which was, you know, it's pretty special to to, you know, I, I don't know many photographers who get a full-page picture on their their dad published in National Geographic. <laughs> so that's that was certainly, that was a fun yeah, thing. Yeah, that's cool. To, yeah, it was a cool, it was a cool, um, cool thing to have happen. And you know, I mean, you're documenting. That's what I mean. It's like it wasn't photojournalism, but it was documentary work. Because on my Instagram yesterday, and I think on September twelfth is uh, a guy named Lawrence Brooks. It's his uh, 111th birthday. He's the oldest living World War II veteran. And uh, I photographed him. He was the cover of the magazine. And there's another guy on September 11th who uh, was, uh, uh, he'll be 100 years old on September 11th. And he was in the, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA. So he did all these secret missions in Belgium and, um, you know, and I, I knew a decent amount about World War II, but to hear it from these people's lips about how, um, how the story of the war unfolded, because every person had an interesting story. You know, um, every, everybody went through this big personal thing. And, you know, it was individual sacrifice that people went through then. And I'm not sure it would have the same I'm not sure people would behave the same way now as they did then. Um, you know, my, my father was 17 when the war started. Uh, he went and had a surgery, a hernia surgery, so he had passed the physical so he could join the war. So like, you know, a year and a half later or so, he was in the, the North Atlantic in the, in the Navy. And that's, you know, that's, that's your guys' age. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, that was not, you know, that's a fearful thing. It's a big commitment to to make with your life. Yeah. So, you know, mm. and, uh, you know, pe- people are just different than now. And I think they expect different things. But, you know, I, I firmly think that ultimately uh, Americans and, and, and the like, we, we would do the right thing. But I, I do think that, you know, they call them the greatest generation. And I think there's some truth to that. I think that they did what they needed to do. And I think that, you know, I think they ended up, you know, kind of helping the world recover from this. I, you know, one of the, the, you know, and you're always learning, right? So I went over to Russia for this World War II story and I went to Leningrad and there's a siege of Leningrad for, uh, I think it was uh, eight or 900 days uh, that this, the Nazis surrounded Leningrad and they were trying to overtake the city and they never did. 
but the commitment that the people in Leningrad went through. And it was, it was amazing. And you start looking at Russia lost 25 million people, you know, right. <laughs> they lost you more know. than America. I think they lost like more than America and Britain combined. Like, well, they oh, lost. No, 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 well, not not even close. Um, the United States lost four hundred eighteen thousand. I'm not sure how many Britain lost, but you know they lost twenty five million people, and and we lost four hundred eighteen thousand. I think I think Britain lost like two hundred eighty five thousand or something like that. So it's not it's not even in the same world as far as numbers. Yeah, it's not even not even comparable. But but it was interesting to hear these people's stories. I mean, there was a the reason they didn't get completely shut off is that there was a lake <clears throat> connected to Leningrad and it froze and they drove supplies in and out across the lake and it's called the the um uh, the the uh, lake of survival I'll, I'll think of the right term but it was it was unbelievable we talked to people who were five years old and who were evacuated across this lake and they they have memories of driving across this lake so Oh, it's called the Road of Life. You know, Google Google the Road of Life. <laughs> Google the Road of Life and think about that. It's a it's a pretty amazing it's a pretty amazing story about the what the Soviets went through to survive. Or yeah, they were Soviet at that point, I guess. So, um, you know, yeah. so you know, so it, it's a it's a pretty pretty astonishing story that they uh the choices that were made and i think a lot of these these choices are thrust upon people um you know it's not like they go looking for anything like this it just it ends up happening to them definitely um yeah jonah i believe uh, you had some questions yes yeah, well. so uh, just to, to compliment what you're saying i mean i think definitely photography in, in general i think more than people realize has had a great a really significant role in, in bringing social issues and, and not even that, you know, stories as well to the forefront and like sure. telling people or showing people really what what they never knew about otherwise and photographs really just showcase that. You know, going back even from Jacob Reese who, who photographed the tenants and tenant life in the yeah. United States to now, you know, just different photographers around the world who were trying to bring their own issues forward. Um, I also wanted yeah. to kind of touch on this topic. So we get this kind of concern a lot, um, and I'm sure you've probably heard the same thing. A lot of students feel that because they don't have the best gear, it kind of, you know, dis it, it, it makes it harder for them to take great pictures. So what, you know, advice can you really give to them to maximize the gear that they have around them, whether it be a smartphone or an old camera or something like that? Sure, sure. Well, I, look, I, I, I mean, to touch on two things is like, you know, I was going to when you were talking about this before you said his name, I was going to mention Jacob Risk because there's Jacob Risk Park out in Long Island. You know, my daughter, we were going to go to the, the beach and she says, who's Jacob Risk? So, I mean, there's this opportunity to, to educate and tell her about something that's important to me. Um, and in terms of kind of touching the future, my daughter was born in 2008. They taught her about 9-11 at school and she came home and was telling me about it. And then she said there's even photographed of, of it. And she Googled it and she showed me my photograph. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, so I had never actually told her that I shot these pictures. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was after, pretty. Like, oh, yeah, I took that photo or you never told her. 
ever. No, no, we. I said, wow. It's um, a really amazing photo. Do you know that I? Yeah, no. I said, do you know that I shot that? And she's like, what? So we googled my name and 9/11, and those photos came up. But uh, so that's kind of how you know pictures. You know, kind of. Uh, you know, they last. They have they have impact and power. And I'm actually really proud that these pictures are now in you know history books and museums and. Um, there's a war photography exhibit at the Houston Museum of Fine Arts, which is a, a fabulous photo uh, collection. And uh, a photo historian was talking about my pictures and he says, it's very rare that you see a picture of a war starting. Um, so, which I never really thought about it that way. But it's um, true, like 9-11 really yeah. did kick off the war in Iraq and exactly. Afghanistan. So. Exactly, so it was kind of like, you know, it was interesting to hear somebody think about it that way. But, uh, you know, in terms of gear, you know, switching back to what you asked, in terms of equipment, um, I think it's important for people, if they can, to shoot film and kind of understand film. Because if you can understand film, then you can shoot digital. Film is, um, it teaches you patience and it teaches you um, uh, to find good light and not to just create good light on Photoshop, yeah. you know? Um, um, so I think it's really important to me. I started out shooting black and white and printing black and white. I did color negative film, I did color slide film. So you kind of learn the importance of these things. And those aren't really necessarily cheap to do, but I imagine some, you know, university, uh, you know, have programs that that younger kids or people could get into film. Um, but I think you can do an amazing, amazing amount of really good work on a cell phone. I don't know much about the the Huawei's or any of those others, but you know, because I use an iPhone. But I have a very um, I have a lot of beautiful pictures that, um, that that mean a lot to me that I shot on my iPhone. And, you know, you can control the depth of field, you can put the backgrounds out of focus. And, and when you when you start thinking about photography, I mean, for me, because I use a lot of lighting, strobe lighting and natural light, but I use it in a way that, that I can direct the viewer to see and focus on what I want them to see, you know, uh, I'm in control of that. I'm kind of in charge of the, of the narrative um, <clears throat> of the story. I, I tend to use the word authorship, not just for being a writer, but in terms of being the photographer, because <clears throat> uh, photography, you know, photography isn't a fact, it's an opinion. Um, and you're making choices all the time about the angle, the um, the depth of field you choose, whether you're using black and white or color. There's a lot of choices that are um, your choice, and that makes it an opinion, not a fact. Um, you know, you wouldn't believe the number of people think that that I faked that 9/11 picture and that I somehow worked for the the CIA or you know the National Security Administration or things like that. I mean, I got a, I got a lot of hate really? on that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's, That's it's disgusting. Great. 
Yeah, it's, that's great. That's like insanity. Like at that point. Well, you know, it's it's like QAnon. Yeah, or QAnon. Like the... I mean, do we really think that there's a pedophile cult running the United States government? I I don't think there is. I mean, it's just insane that people would think or that. that. The, the so, of was staged, and you know, it's the it, exactly, exactly. I mean, that kind of that kind of stuff. Um, I just don't. I just don't. You know, there's. It's hard to even. Uh, fathom how people could make stuff like that up. I mean, somebody photoshopped my <clears throat> my picture, the second picture, the one that's most widely published of the plane about to hit the tower, and they just photoshopped the plane, like a hundred planes coming at the towers, you know. So it was it's just like, oh, okay, all right. And then you know, with Photoshop and things like that, people can do anything, and it was just, it was just, frankly, it's just ridiculous. Um, right. I but, mean, I but, think like the, those people don't realize that you know Photoshop didn't really exist back then, and digital cameras yeah. didn't really exist back then. So it's, if anything, if it was staged, it's pretty hard to stage something like that. You know, it's like it'd be it'd be pretty hard to stage that because you know there's, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitic views about about 9/11 and and things like that that are insane, and I I just tend to think that. Um, you know, information is power, and that's <clears throat> that's what we're seeing right now in the election. That there's a lot of power uh, in in disinformation. I mean, that's that's why you know, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was funny that you brought up like film cameras and like how we as younger people should go out and like use film cameras because. Like, believe it or not, my great-grandfather was actually a photographer. I had, I had no idea he was a photographer, but he was. And a couple of weeks ago, I actually, um, you know, received his camera, which was from, I think, like, the 50s or the 60s. And I also received a video camera from 1936, which is insane. Hello, guys. Hey. Hey, I'm, I'm back. So, sorry. Sorry, we got cut off. For no a problem. Um, but um, you you were saying that that your uh, your grandfather was a photographer. I'll be there. Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Hi, I'm back. Yeah, I'm back too. Uh, you were saying that your grandfather was a. My great grandfather okay. was a photographer, and um, I actually recently I just got his uh, film camera. It was I think it's a Kawa. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's this Japanese camera, and um, it, it's yeah, it's really cool. Like you know, to inherit that like piece of it's almost like a relic because I don't they probably don't make them anymore. And you know, it's really cool to inherit that. And you know, I'm thinking about buying film and using it. So it, it's really it's really something interesting, and I can't wait to give it give it a shot. So yeah, yeah, I I doubt they make those anymore. <laughs> I've never heard yeah, of it. Yeah, it was like from the 50s. Yeah, there's, there's no way. Yeah. Um, but it's going to be very interesting to shoot. Um, Jonah, I know you did some shooting with uh, film cameras. Yes. Yeah, so uh, during the, the end of the you know summer and, and the midst of the pandemic, I, I've i always been shooting digital. And the first camera I picked up was my smartphone. So I've never, you know, obviously sure. I was aware of what film was, but I don't have, I didn't have any experience shooting it. So um I found a really good Nikon F with a 50 mil 1.4 on eBay and I got it. Go. It was, you know, it was, I think it's, I believe it's a 59, 1959 version. So older than the, you know, the Vietnam war. 
and the camera was in great shape. Uh, and the only thing really was that the light meter didn't work. So I just used an exposure app on my phone and mm -hmm. it, it was perfectly fine. The camera worked great. And I guess, you know, really the main immediate difference was, you know, with the camera, you're kind of like, it's not spoon fed, but there's just so much data and raw information with the film camera. It's kind of nice because it's just you, the film and your subject. And there's just but, some sort of like simplicity yeah. to, to that, you know, that just is satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's freedom when you have very few choices sometimes, you know, that's a little counterintuitive, but, but I think when you, 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 you can't do everything, you know, that, that, that allows you artistic freedom to really focus on what's in front of you. Because a lot of the choices you're given, a lot of the quote unquote freedom you're given, aren't gonna, aren't gonna impact your result. You know, I think that they, they tend to confuse people. I mean, some of these, some of these cameras do so many things that it's, you know, <clears throat> I have a beautiful Sony camera and a lot of the times I just put it on manual, <laughs> not on automatic, I mean on manual so I control it. You know, because right. I, I can look at the, the display and make one or two adjustments and have it to be exactly what I want. So, um, you no, know. I think, the, I think the big thing with manual is that, like, I shoot manual as well. Jonah, you shoot manual. Like, the thing is, it's like, personally, I feel like I can basically do whatever I want, in a sense. Like, let's say I want to have, you know, let's say I'm shooting a landscape and I want to lower my aperture. All right, so... You know, I can't really do that in automatic, but if I go into manual and I do that, now I can I can get a completely different image or a different, yeah. I guess. Like, you can control image, the like, results. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. But I think that with, you know, the film cameras, there's also like, there's, yeah, it's a level of simplicity, but it's all there's also a level of complexity to it, right? Because mm -hmm. like mentioned before, there's so many variables. So in the simplicity, there's complexity and vice versa with the digital, yeah. right? You can literally like just have it on point and shoot and you can, it's very simple, but you could also control all these different little variables within the digital camera. Like you can go in, yeah, you can do ISO, your shutter speed, your, you know, aperture, but you right. can also go into white balance. Like it's, there's a level of simplicity and complexity within photography. And I mean, personally, sure. that's what I, that's actually what I love about it, you know? like. Yeah. Apart from being able to express myself, like it's that whole technical kind of drive that's really that I really find compelling. And yeah. you know, I mean, what? See, I I agree with you. One of the things I love about digital, though, um, is that you can change your ISO from one frame to the next. When I was looking back at my high school football pictures, I was shooting a film called P thirty two hundred, a Kodak film that you know was an amazing film. It was the ASA um, ISO was uh, 3200, and you know now you can go to you know 10, 15, 20 thousand, and you know so the camera, the digital cameras now they can kind of see in the dark. You know these are amazing um, tools that people can use. But back when I was shooting film, you know the fastest film you could shoot was uh, 3200, and. You know, on my proof sheets, looking back 30 years, I'd shoot a football game at night and then I'd walk out and shoot a picture in the morning and not have changed film. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, you know, so there's all these kind of mistakes in my proof sheets and, and things that I found. <coughs> um, now they're like kind of interesting to see that, uh, 
that you made this choice or this mistake. So, um, you know, I think that there's advantages to both. You know, I've said this to a million people. You know, there's disadvantages to both, but um, I think you should learn both. I think it's helpful. And, you know, and also, you guys are young. And I think that the one thing that if you want a career in this business, the reason I learned to do still life portrait landscape action is because I wanted a career in this business no matter what. So I wanted to learn everything about any kind of photography I could. Um, And I think that's one reason I'm more versatile uh, in a lot of ways, but, um, I urge people your age, you know, learn final cut, learn how to record things like you guys are doing, learn every, <clears throat> learn video, learn every possible program that you can, because, you know, that's, that's the future. And, and that'll also keep you, keep you alive in the business. And, you know, people will hire you because they'll, they'll need to do that. I mean, I've had a lot of good photojournalism friends because newspapers are in such trouble. They go and shoot weddings and they're good at it. And they're basically documenting an event and then they can go do some of their own work they care about um, besides shooting weddings. So um, I think it's I think it's important to figure out, you know, I figured out a way to survive. You know, I moved to New York. I assisted some really great photographers. Um, you know, I learned from them, I borrowed from them, I stole ideas from them. And then ultimately, when you're off doing your own stuff, you'll find your own voice. And that's really the, the most important thing, I think, is, I mean, on an artistic level is to, you know, you can copy people. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's fine. That's an okay way to start out. But that's not where you want to end up. Um, I think it's really important to develop your own voice. Right. And I mean, yeah, like, I feel like that's what we, um, that's like the big thing about photography because like, I think anyone can go out and if they really know what they're doing, they can probably replicate your photos or my photos or Jonah's photos or really anyone else's photos. They really wanted to do that nine out of 10 times or eight out of 10 times, they could probably go out and replicate them but what's the fun in that you know what's the point of doing that i think that what really happens with photography is when you get your own when you really try to learn on your own and you really develop your own unique style and to be honest to be honest with you guys like i'm not there yet i'm still learning a lot like i still have a lot to learn about you know my photos not it's not like every single photo that i take are these amazing beautiful masterpieces like i'm still learning along the way but you know what at least I'm trying to develop my own sense of individuality, right? I'm trying to develop my own niche, my own unique sense of like what photography should be. And I feel like everyone should like, you know, strive to do that. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, look, I'm still learning. I mean, the last story I did for National Geographic, I shot it with a whole bunch of different kinds of lighting than I'd used. I used, used um, these uh, fluorescent tubes um, <clears throat> to do portraiture with. So. You know, um, so I was shooting a little bit slower, but I never would have done this on film because you'd have to shoot so slow. But a lot of the pictures, like the cover of the Geographic from June, I shot that and that's probably 800 ASA. And I never would have done that on film because 800 ASA film has a different um, has a different look to it. Um, and it's it's grainy and chunky and it just wouldn't be 
what I was going for. But but that's the thing is like I bought these lights. You know, they're 800 bucks. It's not that big an expense. I learned how to use them, and then I did all this lighting in in Japan and uh, Soviet Union and and uh, all all over the place with these small lights because I wanted everything to look the same. So. I mean, that's generally one of my approaches. When you start a project, you shoot and you want it to all look the same and feel the same. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's you gotta, you gotta keep learning. I, I, I think you can go online and look up Irving Penn or Richard Avedon and you know, you can look at their pictures and there's probably some website there that'll tell you how to expose film like them or make your pictures look like them. And that's fine. Um, because I think one of the main differences in photography is what's in front of the camera, not the technical aspect of it. Agreed. Um, you know, so, I mean, I'm still working on World War II veterans and survivors of the Holocaust because it's been 75 years and they're not going to be around for long. I mean, one woman right. I photographed uh, at the World War II Museum in New Orleans, uh, she was 88. I think she was three when she went into hiding in Belgium and she didn't go outside for three years. So she was six years old when she came out. And, uh, you know, an amazing story, an amazing lady. And, and I photographed her and she, um, she passed away uh, uh, a few weeks ago. And I did a really, one of my favorite portraits I've done in a long time of a gentleman. And uh, he, uh, he died before the story was published. Um, wow. So I think we've, out of, out of like the 40 or 50 portraits I shot, I think four or five of the people have already passed. And this is just since June. Yeah. You know, this is in the last six months. You know, you look at it, my dad's 96 and he's still alive and living in Thank God. Western Canada. Western, living in Western Kansas, and he still walks a mile or so a day, and he's he's pretty healthy. So, um, but you know, he is ninety six. I mean, that's that's old, right? So. Yeah. Um, it, it's definitely really important to tell the, those stories of of people who are you know who have such interesting pasts and and really want to tell their stories. And photography is obviously you know as we kind of talked about a great medium to really illustrate those stories right and i think like to your point about world war ii and the holocaust like a lot of people they learn about those as historical events but you know every single person who was either a holocaust survivor or they served in you know the u.s army or whatever every single one of those people has a different story yeah. you know yep. so it's like and so it's really like a combination of every little story like which are, I mean, like, which unfortunately, like, they're kind of being lost because, you know, people are dying. Unless, the only way we kind of save that, we all, the only way we kind of, like, really preserve and save them is either through, you know, video, through writing, or through photography. So I think, like, you know, really photographing these people is incredibly important because we can always teach about an event, but we will never actually be able to teach about the individual's perspective, if that makes sense. You know, you gotta, you gotta hear it. Um, I, I think the what's the headline of that story? It was uh, World War II veterans in their own words. You know, so it was interviews with people, and it was their 
you know, it wasn't, they're basically wide ranging interviews and they did these beautiful stories about, about people. Um, you know, some of the, like uh, Eugene Polanski, the guy who's turning a hundred on September 11th and who was in the, the precursor to the CIA. Amazing stories. I mean, he was, he and his, there's a group called the Carpetbaggers and you can Google that and read about their, their role in World War II, but he particularly helped the underground in Belgium uh, mine the harbor in Antwerp to blow up Nazi ships in the harbor. And that created the supply line for the Battle of the Bulge, which was a pivotal battle in Europe um, from the American um, side. So, I mean, it's, 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 (laughs) you know, it's amazing to hear these people's stories. And I just have so much respect for, um, you know, the commitment to, um, to, to America is this lack of selfishness that, you know, isn't as common today as it was then. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, they're 18, 19, 20 years old when they went and that's, that's gotta be a scary, you know, I mean, scary people, reality. Yeah. People during the pandemic have complained that they don't have good internet connection and they can't go drinking in bars, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, we're not, all complaining about not wear, about wearing masks and yeah, it, that sacrifice, but exactly. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, and it's weird to me how that's become a political uh, statement because it's really just about pr- protecting yourself and protecting others. You know, you're protecting others from you and they are protecting you from them. It's a very much a, a shared uh, experience, you know? Yeah, if everyone doesn't do their part, then we're not gonna get anywhere. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, there's a big outbreak now in South Dakota because Sturgis bike rally was there. Um, you know, nobody wore masks at that, but now two weeks, three weeks later, there's a large spike in the number of cases there. You know, I, I look, I did a, a book called Evolution of Visual Record. It's about Charles Darwin and other evolutionary biologists. And I'm just kind of a science guy. And I, I think you just have to follow the science. So, of course, photograph yeah. with caution. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and purpose, you know, I just, I just think you have to, um look nothing succeeds like passion you know so i think that people who want to be photographers whether it's fashion or sports or um you know war photography or still life you have to approach stuff with passion you know or 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 you're not going to get where you want to get yeah definitely i don't think that there's any substitute for passion for sure i mean like I think I like I remember going into the city and I was like photographing and you know during the pandemic and I was with my entire family and you know they were like they were like my, my sister was kind of complaining because she didn't want to be there my parents are like all right whatever we're gonna drive out to the city it's a family outing I was there because I wanted to take photos but I knew that like I'm gonna one day show these photos to like my grandkids like I knew like this is I'm right. gonna be showing them to my family in the future, obviously, like when, you know, the, the pandemic, like 9-11 is basically just history for people that didn't live through it. Like, you know, I think that tying this back to 9-11, like for me and Jonah probably too, for us, it's history. For you, it's a lived experience. It's not history because you actually like lived through it and saw it. Yeah, we're yeah, reading like, about it in the textbook yeah. and, you know, are obviously talking with you and, and our parents, the right. people who were there, but we, we were not there. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Look, I mean, I mean, everybody has, like I say, you know, you know I had 9-11. Uh, now I have the pandemic. And then you guys actually have the pandemic. And sadly to say, there'll be something after this. Yeah. You know, um, but uh, yeah, look, I, you know, talking about your your family not necessarily wanting to be to be there. I think there's a big value in going and doing things on your own anyway. So the experience becomes personal. And when things are personal, the pictures are better. Yeah, that's what so, I felt. Because even yeah. though like, they were all around me, like I was still kind of locked in. Like they yeah. would say, oh, why don't you photograph that? I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me do my yeah. thing. I got you. Don't worry. Yeah, you're, well, you're figuring out your own thing to do too. I think that that's, that's important. You know, and, you know, just talking about the pandemic, there's a photographer named Tim Fadick. Um, you can find him on Instagram. Um, his, his coverage of the pandemic has been phenomenal. You know, yeah. he was out, I think he was out for 80 or 100 days every day. Um, you know, and he got into the morgues and he got into, um, he got into the hospitals and things like that. And there's another photographer, Philip uh, Montgomery, who did uh, some coverage for the New York Times on morgues and, and emergency rooms and COVID wings. It's brilliant work. Yeah. Um, you know, so... You know, that's look. <clears throat> I always tell uh, young photographers this: there's a great bookstore in the city called the Strand. Once this is all over, go to the Strand or your local bookstore, get a coffee, sit down, and look at every single photo book you can, and then put aside the ones you like, and then whittle it down from that big pile down to two or three pictures, and you know it's okay to try to imitate those pictures to begin with, like I said earlier, and then you're going to develop your own voice. Yeah. So, um, you know, Miles, Miles Davis said um, in his autobiography that uh, we all learn the same notes. When you're learning mixed instrument music, you learn the same notes as everybody else, but it's how you arrange it that matters. And, you know, you learn your scales, you learn what, what music is. Right. And then, then then you figure out what music is to you. Yeah. Right. I feel like it's best to learn the actual physical tech. Like it's good to like learn like about the physical skill or the angles that were required to, you know, make those photographs, to take those pictures. But now with those skills, with those, you know, with that knowledge of how to work the camera or how to get that proper angle. How to put your perspective oh, on now photograph something completely different. Exactly, yeah. You know, there's some of my favorite photographers. There's a, um, and these guys are all on Instagram. This guy named Wayne Lawrence. Um, he's a photographer living here in Brooklyn. He's he's a friend of mine, but he's great. Christopher Anderson is an amazing photographer. He used to live uh, uh, in the same building as me, frankly. But uh, and and he's now in Paris. And beautiful, really smart, beautiful work. You know, so. I just think you have to you have to look at everybody that's out there and it's all educational. I mean, there's there's great street photographers from the past, but you know, there's there's great work being done now. I I kind of get tired of magazine articles and articles about one of the most important photographers to me ever is Irving Penn. Um, but I've probably seen 500 articles on Irving Penn, you know, and then there's a, a photographer named Stephen Shames uh, in Brooklyn here. He's an amazing photographer. 
did you know stories about child poverty around the United States. He did. Uh, he was with the Black Panthers for a long time, and nobody knows who he is compared to Irving Penn. Yeah, but but it's. I think it's really important to. Um, you know, I think it's really important to just educate yourself in. Uh, you know, in in the field of photography, the history of photography, because I think, you know, I mean, if you're a mechanic, you learn how to fix cars by looking at a, a lot of cars around you, and that's what photography is. You just have to put yourself out there, of course, and, ed, and educate yourself. It's not just like sneaking around with the camera shooting stuff. I think there's a lot of that, but I think there's also a lot of knowing what came before you. Right, like there's looking at other people's work, and that's kind of like taking all that information in. And then there's yeah, sneaking around yeah. with the camera, which is more so like the application of photography. So I couldn't agree more. I guess to get a last, uh, uh, do we have to wrap up now? I guess should we just get a final? Yeah, yeah. yeah. my my uh, my family keeps looking at me. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> To just to, to get a conclusion, what's one thing you'd say to the next generation of photographers? Well, I, I think, you know, I have a lot of people come ask me, you know, how to succeed at photography. It's like, I don't know how to succeed. I just know how to, to be myself. And I think that you have to figure out who you are and move forward from that. I think I said earlier that learn everything you can about the digital programs and things like that because you know there's fashion photo shoots where there's a digital tech and there's somebody who um knows how to do that and makes a good living doing that there's a lot of other aspects of photography where you can make a good living and you know i don't know what the future is going to be like once this all works out i have a photo studio in brooklyn that is rented for photo shoots for fashion photo shoots and other things I've had four bookings since March. You know, I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know once this is all over if you know people are going to come back to that kind of a shoot. Yeah. Because these were th- these were things where there was 20, 30 people at. Yep. You know, and I'm not sure people are going to want that many people on a set. Yeah. You know, maybe the art director is going to be in an office someplace else, and they're going to be on a live capture system and they're going to see the pictures come through that way. I, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know, you know, um, I've got the studio sectioned off in six foot, um, uh, sections and you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, we'll all you can do. that's all you can do. We'll see if people start coming back. So, um, yeah, it's in the Brooklyn Navy Yard that's called 10 ton studio and it's a beautiful space. Um, but you know, we'll see what, what happens. There's already been several studios, um, that have a lot more overhead than I do uh, go under. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. You guys are welcome to come by the studio if you're ever in the city. Thank you. So. Thank you. Again, you, make- you just have to mask up and wash your hands. So yeah, we'd love to check it out. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much for for joining us today um, to talk about your really inspiring images and, and to give our young audience some insight into your work. Um, guys, make sure to check out Robert Clark on Instagram at Robert Clark Photo. Um, do you guys have any other? Do you have any other plugs that you want to mention? Your new book, um, just to get some final things. Yeah, 
you know, I mean, I, like I say, I think just go figure out the, the, the work you, you, that you're interested in and um, keep your mind open. <coughs> I was never really interested in still life photography, but I've done an extensive amount of it. You know, I did a book on feathers, the evolution of feathers, and feathers are complicated and interesting and beautiful and well-designed and there's so much to learn about them. But I did a book on feathers and I've done that evolution book. And I've done that football book, so they seem like it's they're contrary to each other. But I also did a book. Um, <coughs> sorry about that. <coughs> I also did a book. Um, I think in 2004, it was the first book ever done with a cell phone camera. So I traveled around the United States with a cell phone camera that had a 3.4 meg file. So you know, and at the and at the time, that seemed amazing. Uh, and it was a great, it was a great trip. It was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I'd love to have, uh, you know, it was a good idea. I, I, uh, I was interested in my own work so much at that point. I should have thought up Instagram. <laughs> it should have been my idea, but uh, um, which would be a, I wish I had. Um, you know, but it's it's uh, it's all interesting out there. I I think that there's. There's a lot of possibilities um, out there. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Yeah, there's limitations now that didn't exist before, but there's also wide open possibilities. I mean, I swear you can, if you know what you're doing and you're smart, you can make a a, a film for uh, with ten thousand dollars worth of equipment. Yeah. Oh. You know, and and you know, I directed a, I've directed some commercials and. One of them was about um, a high school football team in uh, in uh, Indiana, and it was very much based on the Friday Night Lights work I'd done. But we shot it on Sony cameras, and it looks beautiful, and uh, you know, it's a nice-looking uh, film. Definitely, yeah. I mean, like, I would love to check them out. Uh, should we, uh, should we, should we put your? Um, well, if you do Robert uh, Clark, Ru- Robert Clark Russell Athletics, you'll get the film. So gotcha. awesome, awesome, yeah. I'm, so I'm again, Robert, uh, again, thank you so much for hopping on our podcast. This was pretty, like, honestly, like I am, like this is this was really informative, and you know, I really enjoyed today's episode. You know, so again, thank you so much for. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, I appreciate you asking, and I appreciate any interest in photography. So, um, you know, keep keep shooting pictures. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything like you want us to leave in the uh, description? Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know. I, really, that's all up to your editorial discretion. But it's just you know, I I I, I love photography, and I, I I can talk about it all day long, and it's it's. Um, you know, I'm a pretty good student of the history of photography, and I urge people to to uh, do the same and learn about photographers from the past, like W. Gene Smith, who's a brilliant storytelling essay photographer. Who actually Johnny Depp, I think, is playing in a movie that they're shooting or have shot. Um, uh, you know, there's you know, learn who Irving Penn, Richard Avedon, Mary Ellen Mark. Andy Leibovitz, Steve McCurry. There's just a, this endless list of, of great photographers uh, whose work I love. Um, so, uh, you know, 
go out and figure out what you want. Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. Uh, Jonah, are there any uh, one, final thoughts? Yeah, I wanted to get one last thing. And so obviously, you know, uh, YMA is a student community. So I kind of wanted to get something in about the importance of other student photographers coming together to share their images with people who are in a similar boat, you know, age-wise and, and who are also developing photographers. Like, what are your, I guess, thoughts yeah. on, on the whole community aspect of what we're doing? I was really lucky. I went to Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas, and there was really good photographers there, <clears throat> other student photographers, and we worked on the newspaper. And the newspaper was really a lab, it was a laboratory, it was a place to succeed and to fail and try different things. And, you know, you know, Andy Nelson, Jeff Taylor, John Sleazer, you know, these are all names, names from the past. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we all worked together. We all competed with each other and it was a great environment. Um, you know, you guys probably follow Pete Souza on Instagram. He was President uh, Obama's photographer. He was a few years older and went to my university and he was around. So we saw him and he came back to things at the university. But, you know, he's done an amazing amount of beautiful work and he went to this university. So we, we kind of created our own community because um, while we were really competitive with each other <clears throat> at that age, we're all really still uh, good friends now. And, you know, we, we, we champion each other's successes. So, um, I, I think that it's, it's important to, you know, we were probably too competitive at that point in our lives, but, um, or at least I was probably, but, but I think that, you know, you create a community, like-minded people. And, and I, I honestly think that talent finds other talent. Um, that are interested in the same subjects. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a good thing to do is to find like-minded people and create your own community. Yeah, and that, Definitely. that's what we're trying to do here at, at YMA, get people who are, you know, like-minded, talented, interested in, in sharing their work and, and contributing to something bigger than themselves. And that's what we're all about. Well, that's cool. I think it's a, I think it's a worthy project and good luck thank you thank you thank you so much for joining us again we really appreciate it uh guys if you're still listening uh make sure to check out robert clark on instagram uh subscribe to the in focus podcast on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and stay safe out there